So this uh, third session is about theology and the blessing of God. And our speaker will be uh, Pastor John McNeff or Dr. John McNeff. And I have the privilege of introducing him. I have no notes because he's my pastor. And how much time do I have? Uh, listen, um, John McNeff has uh, been in ministry for over 35 years. And uh, he's served in three different churches. He graduated from Long Beach State and then uh, earned his Master's of Divinity from Talbot Theological Seminary. And then also his doctorate in ministry uh, from Talbot as well. Uh, John was serving in two different churches down in Southern California before the Lord brought him up to North Creek Church here uh, 20 years ago now. In fact, we just celebrated 20 years of uh, gospel ministry for Pastor John here. And that was a great celebration. Uh, If you don't know... Pastor John McNeff, the one thing you can know is he's just the pastor's pastor. I mean, he has uh, done, as far as I can discern, anything that's possible to do in the context of local church ministry, John has experienced it, has led through it, prayed through it, pled through it, bled through it, and, uh, and on the other side of it now has just uh, had an extraordinary ministry here at North Creek. And uh, one thing you can know about him is that he, uh, he's super faithful to the Word of God. And, uh, and he'll say that's the thing that marks his ministry, and he wants to have mark his ministry. And so uh, a faithful expositor who can find, well, by God's grace, we have one here at North Creek Church, and we're super thankful uh, for that. So, Pastor John, would you come on up and open the Word of God to us? Thank you so much for doing so. Thanks, John. Now, by my count, I have about 20 minutes. We'll try and, we'll try and do it and uh, try and do justice to this. It is a privilege to come and to um, just face all of you. Many of you are pastors, and if not, you're in a church where a trust is faithful proclamation of, your, of the word. And so I cannot break tradition at this point. And I love it anyway. But I think it's great. Would you stand with me? And I want to read Colossians. And I had a foreign translation when you were reading before. You can't teach old dog new tricks. So I'm going to read from New American Standard Version. And if you think it's foreign... You just listen and I'll read, okay? That might help. It says this, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth. The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world as it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, now we commit this word to you because it is your word. You're the very, this is the very breath of God. 
So we ask that your spirit would not only take this word and make it true and applicable again for each one, but pray that you would illuminate it for us today. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You've already heard this discussion about the word revival and what it may mean to various different backgrounds and times. I couldn't help but hear some of what has gone on here and say, yeah, I've got some of the same um, background. Growing up in the Midwest, we had uh, fairly regular revivals in the churches my parents um, worshipped in. Probably the apex of the abuse of a word revival came in a church that I was in. I was probably about eight or nine years old, and it was the yearly revival. I guess that's how often they did it. But I remember sitting there being kind of half asleep. But I remember the, the evangelist was talking about the coming of Christ, and he was talking about the fact that um, he built up an emotion and said, the trump of God is going to sound. And at that moment, literally he had three guys up on the roof blast away on trumpets. And everybody in there, this nine-year-old kid, I just about jumped out of my skin. And all I could think about is, where's my mom? Because I was so afraid of what's going to happen or we're going to leave right now. Can I say, that's a low blow of revivalism. That's not revival. That's manipulation. And so when we hear this word, we may have some of these negative connotations, but it's really refreshing for me to even have heard of the title for what this regional gathering for the Gospel Coalition was going to be focused on. That is just the word revival. I've read Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. I commend it to you. In which he talked about some of the differences in revival. And he says it wasn't until the 19th century that the church really departed from the traditional understanding of what a revival was. Ian Murray comments this way, it wasn't until the last 40 years of the 19th century that a new view of revival came generally to displace the old. And a distinctly different phase in the understanding of the subject began. A shift in vocabulary was a pointer to the nature of the chains. Seasons of revival became revival meetings. Instead of being surprising... They might now even be announced in advance. And whereas no one in the previous century had known of ways to secure revival, a system was now popularized by revivalists, which came near to guaranteeing results. A lot of that can be laid at the feet of Charles Finney, who uh, denied that the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. He taught instead that regeneration is something that's accomplished by the sinner, He said, the Spirit of God, by the truth, influences the sinner to change, and in this sense is the efficient cause of the change. So when we see the history of revival, it does something in maybe all of our minds at this time in America to wonder what is meant by this idea of revival, and is it something that is something we could look forward to and anticipate happening, and indeed even pray for revival. And I believe that it is, and I believe it's a refreshing change that has come about, and in fact, it's not only from events like this, but even some of these writings that we've seen from people like Ian Murray. And I'll mention Colin's book again. Um, I think I probably picked that up a year ago and just was intrigued by the title, God-Sized Vision. And you read books like that and they stir your heart again. And it does make you wonder, why not here and why not now? Has God changed? Is he any different? doesn't seem to be. And so we all yearn for that. 
So I want to take some time just to pull a couple of thoughts out of this passage you read in Colossians 1. And we'll try and keep this focused on just a couple of comments. And if you want an outline, the outline is very easy. I'm just going to spend some time on possibly not cover all that we have here for this passage. But the outline can be very easy. It's just simply that the word came and God blessed. I think that's what you see happening in this passage. I'm, I'm thrilled to see a resurgence in biblical preaching. I've been in ministry almost 40 years now. And to look back on my early years in ministry and to see some of the different things that have transpired over the time I've been in ministry, it's only been the last maybe 10 years that uh, it seems like there's a resurgence on these kinds of elements. Maybe began in my, man, in my mind with t- the Together for the Gospel Conference and then the Gospel Coalition, roughly around the same time, same people, same emphasis. Bent a lot of seminars in my ministry and a lot of places where you get the notebooks, you know, have the T-shirt, and you go home. And I can remember probably five or so years in my ministry looking at several of the notebooks and still feeling a little discomforted and thinking, am I missing something? And I remember over a period of time going back to the Word of God and looking at the pastoral epistles and just coming away with an understanding of what, re-understanding what God has called pastors to do. And a lot of that's just centered around preach the Word. There's a sobriety about that and a power behind that because it's ultimately not our Word. As someone has said, the only time we can ever be assured that we're speaking truth in our congregations is when we're reading Scripture. It's the only time. And so we come to it with this sense of sobriety. I remember years ago, also around that time, hearing John Piper speak. It was one of our denominational gatherings in Albuquerque, and um, he did a thing for preachers beforehand. And then after, he had a Q&A. And I'll never forget one young man raised his hand at the end of hearing John Piper speak. And all of you have heard that know what the seriousness that John brings to it. But then he said, what's the place of humor in preaching? There was just this silence. (laughs) And John Piper leaned over and said, Young man. And I can't do an imitation (laughs) justice at all. But it came across, how could you trifle with the Word of God by trying to say you're looking for a joke to begin your sermon with? And I must admit that my heart probably was not the only heart that was convicted at that comment. But it was one of those times when you're realizing in the seriousness of preaching. Look what Paul does in setting the tone here in Colossians 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. Isn't that a familiar triad that you see often in Paul? Faith, hope, love. Those things, those are some of the marks. In fact, some people might say that those are the, that's the necessary triad of the Christian life. As we define that and as we see how that comes about in the life of men and women who follow Jesus. And we look at how does that come about? Verse 5 continues. So, well, here's how it came about. You previously heard in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you. Just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing So you stop and you examine that and you think, well, these great benefits of the Paul as he speaks to this church in Colossae and talks about how it came. It came to them through the word of God, through the gospel, through the spoken proclamation of the word of God. And then he says it came to all the world. 
And we realize in Scripture there's these words that are not euphemistic, but it's not all the world, but it's all the world in the sense of all the known world. And you kind of review the time and writing of Paul, and your, your mind goes around and says, well, how, where was that then? You think where Col- the Colossian churches are at in Asia Minor? That means that the witness of these churches spread to Asia Minor, spread to Turkey, to Greece, to Italy, to some of the stand countries we look at today, to Syria, to Lebanon, to northern Africa. That's quite an extensive spread of the Word of God. And that all happened in about 30 years. So any way you would cut it, you would say that was what we might term in our phraseology today that we're looking at. That's a revival of unparalleled um, meaning up until that time. Thirty years in all these countries, in the known world, the gospel had been known, been made on those areas. And that's not something we see in, that is um, ignored in other places in Scripture. I'm going to take the time today just to look at four passages in two different contexts that bear some of these truths out. So if you think about the Word of God coming in the Gospel, just think about these familiar passages, but they're helpful for us to look at them again. Think of Acts 2.42. Beginning of the church, Peter's just preached the first sermon of the church. Thousands of Jews have come and said, what must we do to be saved? Their hearts are pierced with the preaching of the Word of God. And Peter says, you must repent and be baptized. And then the church was formed, and they were continually, it says, devoting themselves to four things which we're aware of. And the first one is the apostles' teaching. Continually devoting to that. And it would almost seem like even in that passage, the other three flow out of that. If you don't have teaching of the Word of God, you don't have a real understanding of what we fellowship around. If you don't have teaching of the Word of God, you don't have an understanding the necessity what the symbolism is of the breaking of bread. If you don't have the teaching of the Word of God, you don't have a right sense of prayer. And so they were devoting themselves to this. I think of the words to pastors that Dr. Carson referred to this morning in 1 Timothy 3. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Can I just suggest to those of you who are teaching and preaching the Word of God, it's not complicated. It's not complicated to look around the world and see what God has called us to do. It seems like you can go to a lot of the seminars and read a lot of books and people are in angst about what we're supposed to be doing as pastors. It's not complicated. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. It's part of the discipleship call in Matthew 28. Jesus called us to do what? Not only go and disciple the nations, teaching all, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So we look at even our ordination charge and ask why we were ordained in the first place. It's so that we do not neglect the teaching of the Word of God. You find in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says this, The gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So it's not just passive preaching. It's not just reading some scriptures. It's not just giving some platitudes. It's not just going through the motions. But when the word of God is unleashed, it comes with power, dunamis. It comes with the Holy Spirit. It comes with conviction. And there it says they received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't good times. It was in great times of tribulation they received the word. 
We also see it in the Old Testament. You go to a number of passages. One that I think about is in Jonah, in this story of the recalcitrant preacher. God says, arise and go to Nineveh. He had to tell him twice with the intervening of the great fish in between. But he said, arise and go, in chapter 3 in this proclamation, I want you to proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. It's my word. That's why I don't want you to go and tell them. And before we take too much time criticizing Jonah, we need to understand what a task that was. If you look at the Syrians at that time, know anything about the Syrians, you know that they were not the most hospitable culture. So the whole idea of being culturally relevant would have just gone right out the window in that time. If you're going to think about saving the Assyrians, you're dealing with a group of people who were some of those barbaric, brutish, brutal warriors that the world had seen up until that time. There's records of what they would do when they would take a country captive. They, in fact, you can go to the British Museum of Natural History in London, and you can see they're portrayed in some of the reliefs on the wall. Um, Jewish soldiers spread out, flayed out to where the Assyrians would come along and cut their neck and skin them alive. There's portrayals of taking some of their victims and taking a long spear and running it from their anus out through their mouth. Remember the leaders proudly proclaimed that they would lead around the vanquished kings of the places they'd conquered, put a chain around their neck and lead them around like a dog. God says, go to them. And I suggest, what in the world would you do? How in the world are you going to win that kind of people? Think ISIS. If you had the responsibility to go there, win them. Same area of the world, same people, to some extent, same call. But God says, you're going to go on your claim, which I'm going to give you. There's no, there's no hope in any other way. Think of Nehemiah after getting permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and did all that he did to secure the supplies and go back and, and uh, accomplish that task in 52 days. Nehemiah knew something was missing. He had done his task. He had done what God had asked him to. The walls had been rebuilt. But he knew that security for the people was more than just putting a wall around a city so the people could come in and have a, an identity again. And so they have safety and security. He knew something was missing. So remember what he did. He called for Nehemiah the priest. Nehemiah chapter 8 and says, Call for Ezra the priest. And then all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to do what? Bring the book. Bring the book. And they read from it, it says, for six hours. I take it from early morning, 6 a.m. till noon. Try that in your church. Won't go very far. It says they lifted up their hands and they translated. It's the word we get our word hermeneutics from. They made sure that the language wasn't prohibitive, that people understood the text, they understood what was meant so that it was read to them. They grasped the meaning, what was there. You see, that's the case in all accounts of genuine biblical revival. It's where the Word of God becomes a central focus, not that we worship the Bible you know, as, a, as an idol, but it's what's contained in the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's the breath of God that comes out of these pages that is the only thing that can bring about sal- the power of salvation 
for men and women to believe. It's the only thing that can. We've seen all the way through history, not only Bible times, but in history tells us the same thing. The Reformation of the 16th century is possibly one of the most unparalleled revivals in the history of the world. And we know what the, what the rallying cry of the Reformation was. It was sola scriptura. That's where it starts. We don't have an understanding of how to worship God unless we understand Him as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. We don't have an understanding of our social responsibilities unless we understand how they're revealed in Scripture. We don't understand our responsibility to the world unless we understand how it's revealed in Scripture. Luther was adamant about that. And the section where he's really talking about the biblical languages and the necessity of knowing the languages the Bible is written, he says this, without languages we could not have received the gospel. Languages are the scabbard that contains the sword of the Spirit. They are the case which contains the priceless jewels of antique thought. They are the vessel that holds the wine. And as the gospel says, they are the baskets in which the loaves and fishes are kept to feed the multitude. If we neglect the literature, we shall eventually lose the gospel. No sooner did men cease to cultivate the languages than Christendom declined, even until it fell under the undisputed dominion of the Pope. But no sooner was this torch relighted than this papal owl fled with a shriek into congenial gloom. In former times, the fathers were frequently mistaken because they were ignorant of the languages. And in our days, there are some who, like the Waldensians, do not think the languages of any use. But although their doctrine is good, they have often erred in the real meaning of the sacred text. They are without arms against error. And I fear much of their faith will not remain pure. End quote. All because of what? The written word of God. And again, you see that even in more modern revivals, in uh, the much publicized and referenced book today that we're looking at, God's Size Vision, Colin Powell remarks this way, says, talking about the Chinese church, the Chinese um, revival in the early 1900s where a Canadian Presbyterian ministry, missionary named Goforth, Jonathan Goforth, was used by God to bring back great revival during that time. He says, The Chinese church's stress today recalls Goldforth's belief that spiritual power and growth come not by human effort, but by the Holy Spirit. He believed the Holy Spirit works in revival by illumining the Scriptures. Therefore, Goldforth strongly resisted modernist efforts that he believed undermined biblical authority. Then he quotes from Goldforth, who says, There never has been a revival except where there have been Christian men and women thoroughly believing in and wholeheartedly pleading the promises of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the only weapon which has ever ever been mightily used in revival. What has been given for what it claims to be, the Word of God has always been a sharp two-edged sword like fire and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. So when we review not only the biblical data, but when we look at history, we see that's a consistent thing. We see that when revival comes, it's preceded by the Word of God because it brings God's revelation. Without God's revelation, there's nothing of substance that happens in the heart. So just like in the letter of the Colossians, the Word came, the Gospel came. All that is contained in Revival and the Spirit of God working comes encased in God's Word. 
But then the second part that we see in this passage is simply not only as God's word comes, but what happens when God, God's word comes. We find that God blesses. Look, first of all, at some of the characteristics of this. In verse 6, as we kind of break this up a little bit, it says, The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. He mentions that also in verse 10. What happens when God's word is unleashed? Biblical fruit begins to occur. Again, if we go back and look at the passages we talked about earlier, we can go back and review the fruit that came. We know that in Paul's time, that the fruit of the gospel, as he mentions there, was taken to all the known world at that time. And then he even mentions some of the fruit we'll get to in just a little bit as we examine that from this passage. But if we review some of these other passages, we go back to Acts chapter 2, and we look, well, what happens as a result of being devoted to the Word of God? I love this passage, and I think any... Student of the Word, any pastor, knows this passage, and we read this one verse over and over again, and it just does something hard to say, Yes, Lord, do it again, do it now, do it here. Verse 42, they're devoted to these things, but then in verse 46 it says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together in gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and then these words. And you know them. And the Lord was adding to their number, day to day, those who are being saved. Isn't that what we desire? Isn't more than anything else, we want not John McNeff disciples? Don't we want Jesus disciples? Don't we want men and women who have encountered the living Lord like we have? Don't we desire to see God through the Holy Spirit work in their hearts? And we stand back in awe and say, how in the world did that person get saved? And we know the bottom line truth is because God did it. Amazing thing is some of those people look at us and say, how did he get saved? Right? It's because the Spirit of God did it. And that's what we yearn to see. You think of 1 Thessalonians, a passage we read earlier where the Word of God came in power. Chapter 2, verse 13, it says, We also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is. What it really is is what? It's the Word of God, which also performs, performs its work in you who believed. And then maybe as I look at the epistles of Paul, you look at all of them, this one spells out more of the fruit there maybe than any of the other ones. Because in verse 7 it says what? First of all, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Chaia. You became the flagship church. You remember how they were born? They were born in Acts 17 when Paul had been there. And then a bunch of, I can't picture them, was waterfront thugs are hired to come up there and beat up Jason where the church is meeting in his house. That's pressure. Leon said that. That's pressure. That's how the church was formed. But in that pressure, they came together and they became an example for all of those in Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8 says they became impulsive missionaries. I say impulsive because it just seems like they didn't have to have missions conferences. They just seemed like they went and they spread out. They took the message so that it became known to people around them. So much so that the influence of Paul was greatly aided 
because of these people that came from this church, because Paul says, listen, because of what you've done, I have no need to do anything. There's a natural fruit that happened. In verse 9, I love the symbolism of this and the reality behind this. They turned to God from idols to serve a true and living God. You study the history of the times and you examine what that must have meant. Turn to God from idols. That would have been the Greek pantheon of idols and the subversion of the truth that was put into these false idols were Olympia and, and Zeus and all of these inventions of man were said to have these supernatural powers. I thought that was kind of just a relic of the past a couple of years ago when we did a tour heading to Corinth and we landed in Athens and got on the bus going to Corinth and were tired. And our tour guide that you're required to have when you go to country, a tour guide for the next hour and a half extolled their virtues of Greek mythology. And when we sat that night to examine where we're going the next day, I asked her in a polite way that I could. I said, you know, um, I'd like to have a little more time because there's some things I'd like to say. And so was there a problem? I said, well, yes. I, in a polite way, I said, you know, I'm really not interested in about these Greek pantheon of gods. You would have thought I was talking about our first child. It's almost like she still believed it. That's what Paul was referencing. You turn from that kind of expression of these kinds of God to a true and living God. My friend, our world doesn't worship Astarte and Diana and Zeus and all of those gods, but they have other gods. And it takes the same miraculous turning of their hearts before they will turn away from those false gods to the one true living God. How about Jonah? We looked at these brutal Assyrians. What was the result of this? The Assyrians, it says they believed in God. That's all it says that they did. But it says the king covered himself in ashes and sat in the ashes. And then he proclaimed this. He said, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and that men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. I guess violence is in his hands. That's revival. In the most unexpected of places. And we're not going to get into why Jonah felt the way he did, but it's simply an example of the fact you don't have to be culturally relevant to have God do his work. That wasn't there at all. And yet they repented. You look at Nehemiah and the same thing you see in these other passages, also in Nehemiah. When the Word of God came, they opened the book. You find out they came, they confessed their sin, they went back and they reinstituted worship. They brought the priests back. They reinstituted the offerings. They, they did all the things that God had told them to do simply because they brought the Word of God back. They put away their foreign wives. Dramatic changes in that culture simply because they brought the book. And they honored the book that God had given to them. That's always the way it is when God's Word is seen as an honorable and divine treatment of what God reveals from mankind. When we look at that, we see what he has, and it begins to change people's lives. Last year, I had occasion to go with one of our missionaries from our church who flies for MAF to Indonesia and went to some of the... Um, you almost feel like you're just about on the edge of the earth from us, and yet you go and you see the hand of God there. It was, it was incredible to see. We landed this one little airport where... In some of these 
uh, villages that are back in the jungle. The only way into them is through an airstrip. It would take literally a couple of weeks to walk into a village like this. And we could fly into it in about 15 minutes, half hour. We land in this one little village and Brad asked me, he said, do you want to see, and I don't recall his name, do you want to see the, the man who's the teacher in this city? He said, sure, I'd love to see him. So as we landed the plane and all these, um, I felt like munchkins. <laughs> they go about four, four and a half feet tall. And so I'm a little taller than they are. And um, so they gathered around and then we walked down the airstrip. And uh, then here's this little man comes out. He has on a uh, old beaten up T-shirt. He has on a green L.A. Dodger hat. I said, Dodgers? He had no idea what in the world I was talking about. He didn't know what L.A. meant. Teeth missing, smelled like a combination of urine and B.O., but I asked him what he was doing. And Brad translated, and he went and got his Bible and began to show me what they were doing. He said, we're getting ready to baptize. I think it was like 160 people the next Sunday. 160 people. There weren't even 160 people in that village. But the Word of God has gone forth, and this man has been a faithful teacher and just reduces it to their language and invites them in. He showed me his little little hut where he teaches the Word of God. And I, you talk about one of the most humbling moments to realize you can't even fit in these little seats. And here this man is teaching all these people, and they're coming to know Christ, and they're being baptized. And I asked him, I said, so what's the difference that having the Word of God in your language means? And just without a break that I could see as it was translated, he said, well, we, we, we used to hate... We used to kill people. We used to eat people. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I felt like I could have been about equivalent of a good half side of beef if they really wanted to get hungry that day. We used to hate people. We used to kill people. We used to eat people. We don't do that anymore. And so through his toothless smile, you could see that this man knew and loved Jesus. One of the other ladies came, she went running away, and they came back, and she wanted to show me her Bible. Torn apart, underlined. It looked just like one of yours. She wanted to show me how precious the Word of God was to her. Remember, friend, there's fruit that happens when the Word of God is made evident in people's lives. Look in verse 9. There's some other things that happen back in Colossians now. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and asking you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. I'm not going to repeat the wonderful message we heard from Leonce on prayer, except to just mention this is also a sign of revival. It always is. Before, very often, and afterwards. Ian Murray has written in this book, Revival and Revivalism, where he talks about American revival from 1750, I think, to 1858. And he there lists some of the common ingredients to true spiritual revival. He says, number one, there's a hunger for the Word of God. There's a hunger for prayer and for serious Christian literature. He goes on, he lists a number of other things. A wonderful, profound seriousness, the same evident work in many places, joyful praise and readiness to witness, new energy and practical Christian service, the recovery of family worship and religion, an observable raising of the whole moral tone of society be- begins with prayer and the study of God's Word. We ever heard that before? How about Acts 6? When the beginning of the church, 
the disciples said, we've got a problem. We need to have this distribution elements to these widows are being ignored. And we cannot remove ourselves. We cannot ignore two things. The ministry of the word and prayer. That's, that's, always the, that's always the ingredients. That's always what it is. In the Colossian church, it was the same way. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So prayer becomes a, one of the walking sticks, if you will, that aid us as we walk along in our Christian growth and understand what it is to to apply all that God has given to us. Again, looking at the revival in Chinchow, China in 1908, there was a local missionary there at that time named Walter Phillips, and he's very skeptical. Just like I mentioned, I am just like in my bazaar about this whole idea of revival. He was skeptical. He didn't like these revival hysterics, like people on the roof blowing trumpets when they talk about the Lord returning. I don't blame him. He didn't like that. But after two, attending two minute, two meetings, he says this. At once on entering the church, one was conscious of something unusual. The place was crowded to the door. Intense, reverent attention sat on every face. The very singing was vibrant with new joy and vigor. The people knelt for prayer. Silent at first. But soon here and another there began to pray aloud. The voices grew and gathered volume and blended into a great wave of united supplication that swelled till it was almost a roar and died down again into an undertone of weeping. Now I understood why the floor was so wet. It was wet with the pools of tears. How long since that has happened in our churches? The very air seemed electric. I speak in all seriousness, and strange thrills course up and down one's body. Then, above the sobbing, in strained, choking tones, a man began to make public confession. Words of mine will fail to describe the awe and the terror and the pity of these confessions. It was not so much the enormity of the sins disclosed or the depths of iniquity sounded that shocked one. It was the agony of the penitent, his groans and cries and voice shaken with sobs. It was the sight of men forced to their feet and in spite of their struggles impelled, as it seemed, to lay bare their hearts that moved one and brought the smarting tears to one's own eyes. Never have I experienced anything more heartbreaking, more nerve-wracking than the spectacle of those souls stripped naked before their fellows. Revival brings heartfelt prayer. Again, whether it starts with that, continues in that, or ends with that, it's like we can just be enveloped in prayer. And it is a great rehearsal for us to remember that that is our primary communication with God. We receive His Word and we reflect it back in prayer, believing that He hears, believing that He cares. And He loves hearing the prayers of His saints. Third thing you see here is not only the fruit and the prayer, but you see there's a worthy walk that's talked about. Verse 10, he says, I'm praying for you, so that what? So to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. So you think, well, what does a worthy walk look like for us in year 2014? We leave this conference in a few minutes 
And we say, what will this mean? Can I just suggest some things as we try and focus on how do we observe what we are knowing and feeling and experiencing? Can, we, can I just encourage us to, first of all, continue to clarify the goal of what revival is? The revival impetus that we see in Scripture is not church growth. It's not social justice. It's not getting Jesus on your team. It's not personal fulfillment. It's not psychological reformation. It's people repenting of their sin. It's men and women coming to the place to recognize before a righteous and holy God, I am undone. It's being like Peter was when he saw Jesus go out in the lake and ask him to go with him. He said, well, I'm the fisherman and I've already been out all night and there's nothing there. But Jesus says, well, come along. And he goes out and pretty soon the nets were so heavy they couldn't even drag him in the boat. And what's his reaction? Ah, good commercial venture. I'll hook him up and we'll make lots of money. No. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's clarifying the goal. Desire that men and women will come to that place. We must clarify the need. We must understand that men and women are lost and broken without Jesus. The Bible tells us very clearly that they are born spiritually dead. They are children of wrath. They are hostile to God. In the flesh they cannot please God. Satan has blinded their eyes so that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the believers so that they might not see the light of the gospel to the glory of Christ and be saved. If those things are true about the men and women in our communities, in our churches, in our families, how do we break through to that? Is it by our own intellect, our own power, our own ingenuity? And we would look at that and say, it's impossible. It can't be. But they're still lost. So we must also clarify the gospel and continue to make that the focus of what we do. The focus of all that we do. We can have a lot of other things which are noble acts. We can confuse justification and sanctification by saying that we clean the streets of cities in which we live and we plant trees and we do all this kind of stuff. That's fine. That's sanctification, my friends. That's not justification. You don't do that stuff in order to get people saved. That may be the result of people who are saved and there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but that's not justification. How did Jesus bring this about? Richard Owen Roberts reminds us that the first work of the gospel is not love. It's not even grace. The first word of the gospel is repent. The fact is, that's a one-word gospel. That's the word that Jesus used. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. John picked it up in Mark, or Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 6.12 says the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. In the sermon in Acts 2, for a sermon of the church, the message was what? Repent and believe. So, my friend, if there's going to be an encouragement for people to walk in a worthy manner, it's got to be by clarifying these things and making sure that we understand that the good news is really the good news. And without understanding the bad news, there'll never be good news. Do you remember a passage in Zechariah 2? I thought of this, and I was going to use it first, and went back and just refreshed my mind. Zechariah 2 is where there's a picture there. It's where the exiles returned from Babylon and the, the instruction is really Zerubbabel before he came and built the second temple. Can you believe that? I'm, 
I'm sorry, Lord, I'm not done yet. Can you believe that? I really thought I'd turn that thing off. And not quite. Okay. That'll be an illustration for some of your sermons about not listening to God, I'm sure, sometime. Zechariah 2 is this, is this passage where it says that there's a... It says this, I see and behold a lamb stand full of gold with the bowl on the top of it, and it's seven lamps on it, and seven spouts belonging to each of the lambs which are on top of it, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the left. It's this picture. You've got these two trees, and I take it that what's standing for is, is, the, is the guardians of Jewish culture, the priests and the law, if you will. And so you've got, or the priest and the king. So you've got these two elements that's there. Then you've got these, this bowl there, and they've got pipes like, like, you know, like um, funnels coming from this olive tree, feeding the bowls on this lampstand. And I take it what it is, it's a picture of the never-ending supply of oil for this lamp. And it's like God telling Zerubbabel, you need to know, you need to have this picture in your mind. You look at this time when you're back from exile and you've got the temple that needs rebuilt. And some of them remember the first temple, how wonderful and grand it was. You need to remember that it's me that's supplying the oil for your lamp. And it's never ending. It's like, a, it's like having a, a, a hose from the gas pump that follows your car everywhere you go, always plugged in. That's why he says in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Goodness. (laughs) I wouldn't like telling him where he was calling. But my my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He needed to know that the rebuilding of the temple was God's doing. He needed to know that came from God. And if we, don't, if we don't remember that, if we don't remember that power from God comes not from us, it comes from Him, we will have forgotten who is behind this thing in the first place. We must never forget our role. Going back to just ending up this passage in, in Colossians 1. Look at verse 13. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Do you remember what your life was like before you came to know Christ? It's a very constant thing that reviews, I review in my mind, thinking back what it was like before I knew Christ, thinking what, where my, the destiny of my life, where I was heading. Think what it would have been like if he had not reached inside and done something to regenerate me. It's an incredible thing when we think about what this means. That's why we devote ourselves to these things. That's why when we see what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, preach the word all the time. All the time. Let the word do the work. I've seen this several times, and I've tried to look it up near as I can tell. It came from, uh, I saw it first in an autobiography of Whitfield, George Whitfield by Robert Phillip. And it goes back to, Spurgeon, who also wrote this in his book, but he talked about a young man by the name of Thorpe who was an observer of what George Whitfield was doing in his evangelistic calling. And Thorpe was a, he was an infidel. He was not a believer and he had a bunch of buddies who were like him. And they'd heard him preach 
And they didn't like what they heard, and so they started to make fun of him. In fact, they formed what was called the Hellfire Club. And evidently, if you knew Whitfield, and some of the writings would corroborate this, he was cross-eyed. And so they would take to imitating his looking cross-eyed and mocking him this way. And one particular night, Thorpe and his buddies at Hellfire Club went to a local pub, and he was emulating him, and he stood up on a table and grabbed his Bible, and with cross-eyed look in his eyes, he began to rant and rave and opened the Bible, and he opened up to Luke 13:3 that says, "Except you repent, you shall, not, you shall likewise perish." And in the middle of mocking Whitfield, and he read that passage, he began to extol, ex, you know, began to extol the virtues of that passage. He's on the table, began to talk about the passage and what it would mean to repent. Otherwise, they would not see Christ. And he stopped all of a sudden, put the Bible down, dropped to the floor, and walked out. A changed man. As somebody said, he accidentally converted himself. (laughs) Reading the Word of God, and evidently he went on and and was uh, put into ministry by Wesley, John Wesley. So his life was a changed life. My friend, the power of the Word of God cannot be compared to anything else when it comes to bringing about spiritual change. It's the only thing that God gives us. It's because Jesus is the Word. We find that in John 1. It's because the Word of God is the very breath of God. It's the Holy Spirit. So when we want the Holy Spirit, we take what He's already given to us, and we read it, we study it, we dig into it, we apply it. We teach it so that our men and women, our churches, know what the Word of God is. I don't know where I got this, but let me close with this. It's an injunction to all who would be teachers and preachers of the Word of God. It was written, evidently, it was an anonymous thing that was written by a person in the church talking about their pastor. Instructions for the pastor. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign down from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his typewriter. It's an old-fashioned letter. And his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the flock of lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our surfeited communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever spouting remarks and stop his tongue forever tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in this lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and time to the pulpit. And make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him. Humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it day and night and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. 
When at long last he dares to say, the pulpit asks him if he has a word for God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly, place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant, for he was a brave soldier of the word, and ere he died, he had become a man of God. Father, we, we ask that you would make those of us who are carrying this load of preaching, a joyful load, and yet a load that we would recognize as the responsibility to carry the very breath of God. Father, help us to understand that it's not about us. Help us to understand that it's all about your Son. We thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of the ones here. Pray that you would encourage them to take their gifts, talents, wherever it is, wherever they are, to be faithful to recognize that we don't answer to you for the size of our congregation. We just ask you to do for the faithfulness of our study and our discipline to proclaim your word. And so we want to do that with great love and joy for the task that you've given to us. Father, for all of us here, I pray that you would encourage us as we put ourselves under the word of God, that you would bless our lives because of those who bring the word of God to us. So that, Father, in your good sovereignty and in your, your good will, as we would pray and anticipate and desire you to move in great ways, Father, that you would use our efforts in whatever way you would have to bring revival in our communities, our families, and our land. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.